Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 14 this morning. Mark chapter number 14. We will pick up with our exposition in the book of Mark. We've simply been working verse by verse, and that'll be no different this morning. We'll take up our reading in verse number 43. Um, it'll be a larger chunk of Scripture this morning than generally we do. To be honest with you, I somewhat struggled with um, this passage of Scripture this this week for various reasons, most of them internal. Um, but one of them as well was in part that we've preached much of this passage already. In previous portions, um, dealing with men like Judas and the betrayal and even speaking of Peter and his denials and referencing those and looking forward to those, we've in some ways summarized this portion of Scripture and really dealt with some of the, the characters in it. Um, and I didn't really want to belabor the exact same points again, seeing that that was just a few weeks, possibly a month ago. So this morning I'm going to be very simple with you, I'm going to work through the text and give you some general um, application to some of the things that I believe are important to us at this, this time. So if you will, let's stand with me for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. We'll pick up our reading in 43 and we'll read through Verse 65, you read these words, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude of swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown uh, on his around his naked around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And they led Jesus away to a high priest, to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we, have, need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Let's pray. Lord, again, we come to you just thankful that, you knew, that we even know you, Father. 
in a personal way. Father, we are in some sense, we feel indebted to you for all eternity, but at the same time, we know that we are not debtors to grace. Um, Father, that grace is in very opposition to that. So this morning, Father, help us not to repay a debt as we worship you. Um, help us to just out of the abundance of gratitude of our hearts. And with joy, Father, approach your word, approach your people, approach you in prayer, Father, in such a way that is just honoring to you, Father, and meaningful to us. God, manifest your presence in such a way as we go to your word and that we would know that we've met with Christ, Father, that we've been governed by your spirit, Father, that, that and we know that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. So, Father, may we in some way worship you this morning in a way that, Father, um, you make yourself known to your people. Um, Lord, be with us as we go to your word. Be, Father, with me as I present your word. Help me not to um, rely upon eloquence or wisdom or, um, Father, just any natural skill or aptitude, even though we recognize that's abundantly comes from you. Help us, Father, to simply rely upon your spirit. Father, show us Christ in the text. God, convict us of our sin. Make us more like your son. Help us to rejoice in what Christ accomplished on our behalf. Father, help us simply this morning as we come, whether it's myself presenting the word, Father, or it's those receiving the word, and afterwards, Father, as we minister the word to one another, would you just simply help us to be faithful. Um, faithful, Father, to what you've required of us, to be stewards of the word, stewards of the gospel, Father, and uh, help us not to do it um, with, a, with, a, uh, with a melancholy spirit, Father, but with a, a supernatural joy and peace that can only come from Christ. Father, help us to rest in you for a few moments um, as we go to your word and help us to ultimately rest in you, Father, um, for all of our work and labor as we work and labor in you. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Again, we return to the book of Mark, and you'll remember um, we spent a couple of weeks in the Garden of Gethsemane there just on a few verses, maybe wondering well, why such a large portion of text this morning, and I've already elaborated on that some, and, and it's also in part that I'd like to give you somewhat of a big picture idea um, of exactly what's going on. If the Lord would lead, we'll come back and visit some of the, the details of this, but we're going to run uh, somewhat um, quickly through it so that you get a big picture. I think that's good from time to time as well. You know, the book of Romans is a, is a phenomenal book, as well as many others. Um, and one of the things we must remember is that it's a letter, and that these things should often be read. We, we spend times in the book of Mark, and we spent a year and a half or so now. Um, it was a letter written to churches, you know, and it is often to be read in bulk um, to get the big picture, um, as well as the, 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 the minute details. Both contribute to our sanctification, and both are, are needful. And that's what I would like to do this morning, give you somewhat of a larger chunk of Scripture um, that we may see um, some of the, the things that are going on in our, our Lord's life. Um, but just to bring you quickly up to speed, you'll remember that we're in the last week of our Lord's life, and not just the last week, but the last hours. Um, up to this point, we've seen our Lord um, triumphantly enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's been hailed as king, and now he will be um, hailed as criminal. 
Um, we've seen the triumphal entry. We've seen him enter into the temple. We've seen him preach the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've seen him dialogue with the religious elite. We've seen him uh, preach uh, particular sermons to his disciples. We've seen him cleanse the temple with a righteous indignation. We've seen him um, even bring um, condemnation against the temple because of their um, covenant disobedience. Um, we've seen our Lord um, operate in, in a mighty way. We've seen him worshiped at the beginning of Mark chapter 14. Um, we've seen the devil enter into a man uh, who will betray him. We've seen our Lord sit down with his last Passover prior to his death and institute a new supper uh, for the people of God throughout the ages under the new covenant. And then we've seen a change in, in his appearance, a change in his attitude, a change in his um, external uh, a tenor personality for a few moments as he's went into the garden of Gethsemane now I'm agonizing over um, the cup that is before him and we've argued that the cup was the wrath of God um, the world would look and maybe some of the disciples did as well as our Lord agonized there there's no army surrounding him there's no soldiers uh, upon him there's no swords drawn there's no cross in the ground um, with his name on it uh, officially just yet. Um, but we see him respond in such a way that he's never responded for, such that uh, the, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he cries out to the Father with vehement cries and tears um, to the Father. Um, to the point to where he comes back and he has drops of blood stream down his face, no doubt dried at some point. And his disciples... Asked them to watch and pray, and they failed to accomplish that. But our Lord agonizes over um, what is before him. And he sees the cup in his humanity in some way that he's not seen before. Or at least it weighs upon him in some way that it's not weighed upon him before. Um, such that he cries out to the Father even in his humanity, let this cup pass from me. Um, if not thy will, Lord. Uh, it's not my will, thine be done. I'm convinced that at some point he hears from the Father. Um, obtains a holy resolve upheld by the very Spirit of God. Um, in Mark chapter uh, 14 and verse 42, he's able to say, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at, at hand. Verse 41, he says that, that it was enough, that it had been settled, it could be translated, that the hour had come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners even now. And our Lord takes his disciples. They rise up with a holy resolve now. And he has to drink the cup of the very wrath of God. His clothes, no doubt, stained with the dirt, which millennia before he had spoken into existence and even used it to mold Adam into the image of God. The very dirt in which uh, would be uh, replicated time and time and time again um, in such a way that, that in some sense what is standing before him and coming with swords and clubs would be the very dirt which he spoke into existence. Um, and he would rise, submitting to the Father and in some way yielding to that dirt. He rises here from the ground not only with the dirt upon his robes but the streaks of blood upon his face. After he's agonized in prayer and his humanity, upheld by the Father to complete the task that is ever before him, to drink the cup 
The cup feeling that very hour with the very wrath of God. Nevertheless, the Father meets him there and gives him a holy resolve to carry out the mission that God had given him. Verse 43, we read these words, And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priest and the scribes and the um, elders. This passage of Scripture is another one that is a very dramatic scene. Now, the drama didn't end there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now it's drama um, unpacked in a short period of time um, throughout the rest of the night on into the day and in the afternoon. The passage moves quickly. Twice here in the book of Mark, you read the word immediately. It's one of Mark's favorite terms, but not only in this portion, but Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John all. It's going to be a fast-paced move to the cross. It's graphic. It's clearly a vivid picture of an eyewitness account. The language is no doubt personal. Possibly Peter being the source of the eyewitness of the gospel of Mark. And regardless, Mark is recounting by the aid of the Holy Spirit with apostolic authority of exactly what happened on that night. Not everything that could happen or did happen, but everything that the Lord desired for us to know happened. Thus, he, he rises immediately. He goes immediately and proceeds to the disciples. In verse 43, we have what appears to be a, a, a graphic interruption. And immediately, it says, while he was still speaking, Judas, literally appears Judas. Um, one writer who wrote on this recounting our Lord's, um, our Lord's last hours writes these words to set the scene for us. He says, it is a strange midnight scene. This at the gate of Gethsemane, the rich flood of silver moonbeams for its for it is full moon at the Passover, uh, which fills the quiet vale, and here and there breaks in shivered gleams upon this little brook that murmurs among the olives. A grief-worn figure stands among some others, sleep-worn and fatigued, whom is addressing in the mingled vein of rebuke and tenderness and low, a rushed and hurried tread of many footsteps. The sudden gleam of lamps and torches and the clash of weapons and immediately the multitude, a band of soldiers led by one who knows the ground and where the object of their search must be. And thus they confront the Lord and his disciples, end quote. And that one who knows the ground is a man by the name of Judas. Um, here the text says Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and the scribes and and the elders. And again, we've spent entire sermon and more on Judas. Just a comment. It says Judas, one of the twelve. A phrase that is synonymous with Christ's most intimate. Those whom he labored with for three and a half years, those whom he preached with, those whom he slept next to, those whom he taught to pray, those whom he preached to, those whom he had taught to preach, those whom he had um, uh, given authority to go out and to minister the gospel to, to the nation, um, those whom had been a particular um, partaker of the blessings of Christ in such a way that the rest of the world would not know. Um, this is Judas, one of the twelve. But Judas did not come the subtlety of an enemy or a stranger. In the person of Judas came a friend, a close associate, and one whom the Lord knew very intimately, and one whom he knew the Lord very intimately. Judas, one of the twelve. 
with a great multitude or a crowd with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Armed to the teeth um, was, was, was a crowd that came not only with, Ju- that came with Judas. J- John tells us that, that, a, that, a, that a Roman um, cohort was afforded Judas and that could come with him to take this man, Jesus. Why would they come with such a great crowd? Um, come with swords and staves. It's, it's very possible that they came expecting a right. Remember at the, book, at the beginning of Mark chapter 14 that one of the things they desired to avoid um, during the feast days and during Passover was to, to cause a riot. Thus, they wanted to take Jesus privately. Um, probably some estimate one to two million people here during the time of Passover. Jesus had a great following. Um, many partook him as, or, or saw him as a prophet. And to take him during the Passover, during the feast, with all of these crowds, um, made them subject to a riot. So what did they do? They, they, uh, the, the Sanhedrin calls for a, a group of men, a Roman cohort, to come in the event that there is an outbreak and a riot. Thus they come with, with clubs, which would have been um, that natural deterrent of, uh, for riots to subdue. Rome was perfect for that. They knew the last thing that they wanted was to have a riot to break out. But not only did they come with clubs, they came with swords. Maybe they were expecting something more than just a riot. Maybe they were expecting somewhat of a, a rebellion even from the, from the uh, disciples. And in, in, a, in a few minutes, you'll see a small rebellion happen in the person of Peter as he pulls out a sword and takes an ear um, from a man. Verse 44, now this, his betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. Verses 44 through 46, you see the great betrayal. Um, it says, now the one who was betraying Judas, his first description is one of the twelve. Now he's referred to as the one who is betraying. How could he? That's one great question. The one who's entrusted with the ministry is now leading a band of soldiers um, to their Savior's demise. Judas gives a prearranged signal. Um, while he's very familiar to much of the Sanhedrin, he, he wouldn't be that as familiar um, to the Roman authorities who would seize him. So what he's done is he's schemed a plot. And the plot is, is that I'm going to go before you, and whenever I go before you, you may not know who the Christ is or the one whom you seek, um, but I will give a, a clear sign, and that, with that sign, you'll know who, who to take. Um, it would have been dark. It would have been around midnight. It would have been um, a time in which it would have been hard to tell person from person. Thus, um, he would give the signal. What's the signal? A kiss. He says, whomever I kiss. Judas would become, um, for the last 2,000 years, the ultimate pinnacle of betrayal. Um, but not only that, would his very act of, of, of betrayal become... Um, the worst of all acts of betrayal. He would do it with the most intimate of, of gestures, that which is a kiss. This word here, kiss, is a word that you're probably very familiar with. But it's not familiar, you're not going to be familiar with it just simply because you know the English term kiss. Um, the term here is actually phileo. It's, it's often referred to or termed as love, brotherly love in the New Testament. Um, in the context that it is, and in many contexts, the term is, is, is referred to as, a, as an action. 
Um, it's a, a greeting, an actual kiss, that, the, that phileo would be a type of love that would be manifested oftentimes in an affectionate kiss. Um, and that's exactly what you see here, that, that Jesus would be betrayed with an act of affection. In the Near East uh, culture, even in that day, but also in this day, um, it was not uncommon that you would find the kiss on the cheek as a sign of affection and love. And, would, and it wouldn't have been seen as strange, as inappropriate, or even as sexual, but a very form, uh, appropriate form of a greeting, and even among men. And he says, after I kiss the one, he says, seize him, lay hands on him, take him away safely. Literally, the word seize is that, it's to put hands on. It's a very violent word. You lay your hands on him, take him, don't let him go. As Judas goes to him, and immediately it says, now his betrayer, uh, and as soon as he had come, verse 45, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Rabbi is an Aramaic uh, title for, for master, but it's not just master, it's my master. He comes up to him as he would have came up to him a hundred times before. Thus, it may not have seemed strange to those disciples who were all around him, even though Jesus knows exactly what is happening. Um, he says, he comes up to him and he says, not just master, but my master. Which is ironic, isn't it? Because he gives up the one whom he claims to be his master, his Lord. Um, he's not Lord at all. Um, he, he, he refers to him as my master, my master, and he kisses him. And the form of a verb here is, that, is such that he, he, he grips him, he, he probably hugs him, he, this, this kiss of affection. And it could be that he kept on kissing him. And it could be that he wanted to continually do it so that there would be no mistake that this is the one. And immediately they laid their hands on him and they, they took him. And thus we see... Um, they manhandled him, literally, it could be translated. They laid hands on him. Verse 47, And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Um, what we see is the response of the disciples, particularly here. John tells us in John 18 and verse 10 that this man was Peter, although he didn't really need to be told. <laughs> He's usually the one that's out at the forefront, usually the most... Uh, 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 un, uncontrolled, got a lot of great um, characteristics about him and some that are not so much, that's all of us. But disciple, uh, this disciple is usually the one that's out at the forefront, um, taking the lead. Um, he's usually the first to act, the first to speak, and here he is also the first to respond. He pulls a sword and he takes off the ear of a man named Malchus and Jesus responds. He doesn't respond here in the book of Mark though, but in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 52, you read these words. Put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot pray now that my, to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that this must happen thus? Peter, you'll perish by it. Put your sword away. Don't you see that I'm the one who must now drink the cup, he says in another place? Don't you understand that if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels and end all of this? But I don't. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Luke chapter 22 and verse 51, but Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed them. And in the midst of all the chaos 
Um, our Lord does a miraculous thing of replacing Malchus's ear and extending compassion to him. John 18, 11, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? I've determined to drink the cup. I've agonized in prayer over the cup. I've worked through the cup. Peter, I must drink the cup. So put your sword away. Put the ear back on. And um, it's time for me to go. And then he rebukes the people. He looks and he says, Mark 14, 48, Have you not come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. He looks and he rebukes them in their cowardice and in their scheme and in their deceit. And he says, was I not with you over and over and over again? Were there not temple guards there? Was there not security abundant enough to take me then? Um, why, why, essentially what he's saying, he's saying, you treat me like a criminal. If I was a criminal, why didn't you take me in the temple? Why do you seek to take me like this now? And John tells us that as these men come to seize our Lord, they were somewhat intimidated. They come as cowards, they come as schemers, they come as deceptives, they come as snakes in the grass. But I love in John chapter number 18, you read these words that as they come, they say, and they ask, uh, who, who, Jesus looks at them and says, who are you seeking? And they answer him, and Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says to them, I am. You know, the, the New Testament, uh, the, 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 or the New King James says, I am he. But it's literally what, what, what Mark says here in, in uh, chapter number 14. It's the little I am. It's the I, great I am statement, the ego a me. It is the I am that I am. And he identifies himself as Jesus of Nazareth. But to the keen ear, he, he, he identifies himself as more. And what John records is at that moment, they drew back and fell to the ground. That there was a power and an authority at, at that moment, with that phrase, with those words, with that identification that put them on the ground. And thus they come possibly with swords and clubs. Not only because they expect to fight, because they know of at least somewhat of the nature of whom stands before them. Such they could speak a word and could take them all to the ground, an entire Roman cohort. And when our Lord could have erased them with a word, he goes like a lamb to the slaughter and opens not his mouth. You see this excessive demonstration of force as, he, as they come like a criminal, which he's not given any indication that he would be hostile at all. Verse number 48 and 49, 50. And then they all forsook him and fled. <clears throat> but he ends it with this phrase that the scriptures must be fulfilled. Um, Jesus understood even though the scripture says that, that it was envy, that it was power, that it was malice, that it was a number of things that brought uh, them to the conclusion that he needed to die, that Luke chapter 22 um, refers to the power of darkness was at hand even against him. Jesus understood that this was not the power of envy, not the power of malice that was at the forefront of his going to the cross, but at the very operation or the very operation of Satan himself. But there was more, that this was part of God's plan. 
That it was a part of the revealed word of God. That it was happening in perfect harmony with the Father's will. He had just agonized in prayer multiple times to such an extent that he had never prayed before. And he had reached a resolve that this was the Father's will. Don't think for just a moment that when he's in the garden that he's concerned or worried about the devil. Don't think for a moment that, 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 that Rome has got him um, biting his fingernails. Don't think for just a moment that, that, that Judaism, as it gathers around him, and Rome um, grips arms with him, and the devil coalesces alongside them, and all of the world and hell are against them, that that is what has brought him to agonize in the garden. Um, it was his relationship with the Father, and it was his relationship with sin that would affect his relationship with sinners for ages to come. That the cup of God's wrath was about to be poured out upon him and that he comes to submit to that Father's will in that prayer. And thus he says that, that I am going not simply because they are here. I am going because the scriptures must be fulfilled. I am going according to God's plan. I am submitting to the Father. Verse number 51 we read such a, a strange insertion here, it seems, but not strange at all. Our Lord never gives us anything strange, but it speaks of a certain man, a certain young man who followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them, them naked. And there's about a hundred different speculations as to who this man is. Most believe that it's Mark, that he doesn't identify himself. That's great speculation, and it very well may be um, who he is, but we don't really know. Um, but I believe that the point is, is that the disciples have fled, that Jesus is totally alone. And now this certain young man who seems to be associated with the disciples, um, why? Because they come to take him as well and seize him along with the others, um, runs and flees, um, losing his linen cloth, and thus Jesus is all alone. The point I believe here is, is that Jesus has been totally abandoned by everyone. That Jesus stands before um, Rome, that Jesus stands before the power and influences of darkness. Jesus stands before the Father and he stands there with this task alone. No one else. They're all gone. They've all fleed. And this we pick up in verse 33. And they led Jesus away to the high priest and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance. What you see is you see them from, from the betrayal and taking him uh, to, to, to trial. What you're going to find as you study the Gospels is that there's a, a six phases to the trial. Three Jewish and three Gentile. Um, the first phase is actually not recorded here in Mark, but you'll find it in, um, I believe it's John, as he goes before Annas. At some point, he's taken to Annas, and then he's taken away to Caiaphas, which is the high priest. And that's here. That's the second phase of the Jewish trial. Uh, and then he will go on before the Sanhedrin, which will, they will consult together and give the final verdict to put him to death. And then they'll hand him over to Rome, which will be Pilate and Herod Antipas. Um, so he's entered in now to the first portion of his trial, the Jewish portion, the first half. And they led him away immediately to the high priest. The high priest would have been, um, this was in his home. Uh, we find that here, the outer courts. Um, Peter is going to be nestled in the, next to a fire with the enemy. Um, outside in the outer courts, this part of the trial, um, which is unjust, will take place inside the Caiaphas' own home, which is somewhat like a palace. 
And thus we read, they led Jesus away to the high priest, who is, who, which is Caiaphas. And with him were assembled the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. This would have been those that made up the Sanhedrin, literally termed the gathering. This would have been one of the highest courts in the land um, who will make the, the, um, will make the, the claims against our Lord and Savior. Verse 54, Peter follows him at a distance. All have abandoned him except for Peter, and Peter follows from a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself by the fire. I think it was one commentator said that love brought him near, but, but, uh, but fear kept him away. Peter is struggling, no doubt, in his own heart um, with, with what to do now that our Lord has been taken. He's already drawn sword. He was willing to fight. He literally lived up to his, 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 his claim earlier that, he, that, 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 that all abandoned him. He would not. <clears throat> and that he would not deny him even to death. And Peter, in some sense, tried to, to live that out. And Jesus stops him. And now he doesn't know what to do. He's following far behind. And we'll meet Peter again here next week as we talk more about his his denials, but until then, um, he sits outside listening possibly to the horror of the beatings of his Lord and Savior, not knowing if he should charge in or if he should stay back, whether he should play safe or he should play it harmful. Um, but he followed none, nonetheless. Um, verse 55, Now the chief priest and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even did their testimony agree. So what you find here is you find them beginning to um, seek to find something against our Lord to charge him with. The reality is that they've already charged him in their own minds. They've already sentenced him to death. And now they have to find a charge which will correlate with that sentence. So what do they do? These men begin to testify against Jesus. It's amazing too. Again, just get the context. It's after midnight. It's in the middle of the night. Um, they, they've got an entire cohort legion. And somehow, in the middle of the night, they found all of these people who have just seemingly came forward to testify against our Lord. It was really a great scheme. It was more than just um, Judas betraying our Lord. It was an entire uh, nation gathering together, the religious elite ally allying with Rome and with the devil um, to bring about what they desire. Um, it was a great plan in their own mind and thinking, but it wasn't quite great enough because they couldn't get men to lie well enough or to agree. Um, but the greater tragedy here is, is that, that these men who are bringing charges against our Lord are the same men who profess such a great love for Torah and the law of God. And in this trial, they break its very spirit and letter from the very beginning. Deuteronomy 16, 18, um, you can read uh, the, the, the boundaries or the laws according to how they are to judge a man. They are to appoint judges over themselves. They are not to distort justice, it says. That they are not to take a bribe, it says. That they are to pursue justice. They are to have, in Deuteronomy, a multiplicity of witnesses. That there's a, a number of ways that they are to carry themselves in a, in a, in a trial. 
Not only that, but rabbinic tradition by this time has also put together just a whole host of, of rules and regulations to protect the innocent um, from unlawful and unjust punishment. That was one of the great, um, the great purposes of the Old Covenant law. Not the greatest, but that was one of the purposes. It, it had the innocent in mind. Thus, uh, they put together this legal system to protect the innocent insofar as they could. And Judaism was, was a progenitor of that. They desired that. But here they cast it all out the window. For example, um, rabbinic tradition argued that, or, or, or according to the law, within the rabbinic writings, Again, this is external, extra-biblical type of tradition that they had set. But their own law that they're going to break, they were not to, to, to um, have a bribe-induced uh, uh, arrest. Number two, they were to, a trial was never to take place in a priest's residence. Um, a trial um, was never to have a, a, a capital punishment sentence voted on at night. I mean, it was never, they were never to have a sentence of capital punishment on a feast day and its Passover. The accused could not incriminate himself as a single witness, thus violating Deuteronomy chapter number 16 and 19. And that's exactly what you're going to have here. You're going to have them finalize the verdict upon um, a, a, test, a single testimony of Jesus saying, I am, I am, without any evidence, no evidence. That's why they didn't take him into the temple. They had no evidence. And false witnesses, not only that, but false witnesses were to be punished with the same punishment that they had um, brought against the accused. That all of the false witnesses that were here um, would have been put to death um, if it had been carried out justly. That what we're seeing here and what we're seeing is unfolding before us is nothing but injustice and a trial that is an utter farce. It, is, um, it has been set out from the very beginning to be fashioned, to put to death a man whom they hated without any evidence and without any just cause. And that's exactly why when it goes before Rome and it goes before Pilate, he will say to them, I can find no fault in this man. And he will inevitably, um, he will wash his hands. And, and, at what, and at that moment, the nation of Israel, not only the religious elite, but the people, will cry out for his blood in such a way, and they will take upon themselves the accountability of the blood of Jesus Christ. And they will say, put his blood upon us and upon our children. And what we have before here, before us here, not only in the cross, but everything leading up to it, um, was just injustice beyond Measure. They want him dead, and now they need to find out and seek a way to secure that through finding and creating false witnesses. And that's what it says in verse 57. Many false witnesses. Pseudo-marturo. False witnesses. False martyrs. In which they could not find agreement. They at least had some. This is the interesting thing about legalists oftentimes. They'll cast out much of it, but they'll try to find some vestige of maintaining the law in some sense, even though they can't keep it all. Um, thus, they seek after two to three witnesses, according to Deuteronomy. Verse 58 and 59. They finally begin to focus on one thing that somebody brings up, and that's the fact that he said that he would tear down this temple and bring it back up in three days. And that's a paraphrase. 
And that it was blasphemy to, to argue that you were going to destroy the temple. Although we know that John too, that that's exactly what he did not mean. That he was speaking of his own body. That, 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 and, and of his death and of his burial and of his resurrection. He said this temple, speaking of himself, that he would die. Give his life a ransom for many. And then on that third day he would be, back, he would be brought back. That, that, was, that was what he was referencing. But even this couldn't stick. It wasn't enough for them to say that it was evidence. Um, they couldn't find anything to stick. You know, the fact that he was eating with sinners, the fact that he would break the Sabbath, all of these things, they, they, they couldn't bring it all together and actually nail him down with a crime. Um, nothing that would stick. So what happens is, uh, verse number 16, the high priest just loses it. <laughs> I think Caiaphas, by this point, um, is just fed up with everything. It says the high priest stood up literally in the midst. You get the idea that there's three different groups all around him um, of the Sanhedrin that was mentioned earlier. And, and Jesus would have been down in the midst being, being berated with questions and, and various things and testimonies. And, 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 and at one point, Caiaphas literally stands up and it's emphatic that he comes down into the midst and he confronts Jesus. And he, he asks him this. He says, do you answer nothing? I think that it's probably, this is just speculation, but it could be that he just gets tired of it all. It's like, we've got to nail this guy down. Um, nothing's sticking. Nobody's saying anything that makes any sense. Nobody's agreeing on anything. We're just incriminating ourselves. Let's just ask him. So he literally gets up and goes down in the midst of them and just questions Jesus. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Um, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He just asks him. If you were to go to Matthew 26, 63, you don't need to necessarily turn there, but you may want to write it down. You have a little different um, idea. Je there, Caiaphas, it literally recorded Matthew, and um, he says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us. The high priest uses an oath to invoke a response from Jesus. The idea is, is that now he's legally bound, according to the law, according to the tradition, to answer. He won't say anything. They can't get him to say anything. If he's a man of the law, then, then, then Caiaphas gets the great idea. Well, then we'll just invoke an oath upon him, and he must answer. You ever wonder why Jesus doesn't answer sometimes, and he does here? Because if an oath by the, by, by the high priest is now invoked upon him such that um, he must answer, being a righteous man. Don Carson says, uh, the outcome is now inevitable. If Jesus refuses to answer, he breaks a legally imposed oath. If he denies, he's the Messiah, the crisis is over. No, uh, but, but so is his influence. If he affirms it, then given the commitments of the court, Jesus must be false. After all, how could the true Messiah allow himself to be imprisoned and put into jeopardy? The gospel evidence suggests that the Sanhedrin was prepared to see Jesus, unequivocal claim to Messiahship as meriting the death penalty, and their belief precluded any other possibility. They'd made up their minds. If he says that he's not, then he's done. If he says that he is, regardless of all the evidence, we're going to kill him. So Caiaphas puts a binding oath on Jesus, and Jesus must answer the oath of the question. And he says, I am. Not only does he say, I am, but he says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we need of, do we have of witnesses? I am, confession under oath. 
And then he identifies himself with Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 101 as he fuses those two together and even says that, that, that with authority that, that one day Caiaphas would sit um, at the, that would see the Son of Man coming as he identified himself as at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven, with the authority of God. He is in some sense saying, Caiaphas, you judge me now, but there is coming a day in which I will judge you. And if he wasn't mad enough already, <laughs> he rents his clothes. He looks at the people and he says, what more do we need? Again, as unjust as could be on the witness of one testimony, he's incriminated and, 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 and sentenced to death on the, on, on the thought of blasphemy. He looks at the people. He says, what do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and some blindfold him and some to beat him. And to say to him, prophesy, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their, their hands. They came to this man. And they found him worthy of death, is what the text says. Worthy, liable, answerable, guilty. Depicts what a person deserves. The tragedy is, is that the one who is worthy of their obedience and praise is now judged by them to be worthy of death. The prince of life condemned to death by the dirt he spoke into existence millennia ago. And if that's not enough, they ridicule him, they spit on him. What a sign of revile and reproach. In fulfillment of Isaiah 50 and verse 6, I gave my back to those who revile me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard. Even goes on to mention spitting. And then they blindfolded him and they struck him and they kept saying, prophesy, prophesy. Ridiculing him, mocking him, testing him, you know. There was an ancient uh, interpretation of Isaiah 11 verses 2 through 4 um, where they, many actually believed in Jewish tradition that the Messiah would be able to discern with a sense of smell, that he didn't need his eyes nor his ears. Jewish tradition records a man who, after two and a half years of being with him and ruling in a capacity, had, had claimed to be Messiah, so they blindfolded him and asked him to discern something with smell, and when he couldn't, they put him to death. Very well could be here that they blindfolded our Lord and Savior, asking him, who hit him, who hit him? Surely you'll be able to discern who hit you, who hit you? To, rid to ridicule, to mock, to do it, even as a game. Then he's turned over to the servants and the officers who receive him, it says, literally with slaps. And they follow in their master's steps, continuing on the degradation. And the trial entirely, again, is just filled with illegitimacy and illegalities. It makes a mockery of the justice and violates the very law of God in, whom they, in which they claim to love. The entire trial was a farce, and there was no intention to give him a fair trial at all. So, and that's the text. What can we learn? What can we take home from this? Probably a million things. But I really just want to give you two. Number one, strangely enough, and there'll be a lot in this number one, this was the beginning of the answer to Christ's prayer. 
This is the beginning of the answer to Christ's prayer. Right? That you read through all of that. And you think about all of that. And you think what injustice. You think about all the treachery, all the deceit, all of the things that went on here. And we could hone in on one thing or another. But at the same time, there's a sense in which maybe on this Sunday, we just don't give them the glory, you know? That even as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in this portion, as well as in Matthew and John, continually recite and recite and recite um, that, 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 that now our Lord has such a holy resolve. He set his faith toward Jerusalem like a flint towards the cross in such a capacity that he rises up and he says, let us go, no more agony. And that time and time again, even the disciples seem to, to try to thwart the very plan of God. And Jesus stays them saying that at any moment, um, if it was my will that I could call down legions of angels in such a way that we could stay all of this, but I don't. Thus that the scriptures may be fulfilled that God the Father had heard God the Son's prayer in the garden of Gethsemane and that this is in part an answer to the prayer of of God the Father to God the Son to uphold them through it all that he stays calm he stays pure he stays steadfast he doesn't waver in the very will of, of his of his own of his own humanity but 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 he's so coalesced with the very will of god that he came not to seek and to do the the, the will of his his self he says in john chapter 10, 10 but the, but the will of the father that's that he stays the course that yes, in Hebrews, that, that yes, in Mark chapter number 14, and in the garden of Gethsemane, the Father heard the prayer of Jesus. What do you mean that he was heard? He had to drink the cup, didn't he? We looked at that for two weeks. If some people look at the prayer of Gethsemane and they look at it like it was a failure. You know, that he had prayed for one thing and clearly God the Father gave him another. Some others try to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt and say that he really didn't want to go, but, but he pulled it out with that last line, you know, not my will but thine be done. And now he, 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 and that, that he entered the garden and he prayed that if there were any, any, other cup, any other way that the cup would pass from him, we don't deny. And I didn't deny that for the past two weeks. I actually think to do that is to do an injustice to the text of Scripture and to the humanity of Christ. But the prayer was ultimately concerned with death and being delivered from it. The book of Hebrews in chapter number 5, which I've quoted time and time again, you read these words. Um, verse number 7, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. The prayer was ultimately concerned with the death and being delivered from it. And that's why he says to the one who is able to save him from death. So our Lord not only prayed let this cup pass. He also said not my will but thine be done. 
which reflected an incredible submission to the Father's will and his incredible love for us. And I don't think that he's asking inherently in that, not my will, but thine be done. I think he's resolving, not my will, but thine be done. He knows that this is what he must do. He knows that this is the Father's will. You know, in John chapter 10, in verse number 38, I believe it is, and that, that portion that I just quoted a little bit of a moment ago, um, verse 18, uh, verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life and I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore, there was a division again amongst the Jews because of these sayings. He says, no one lays it, no one has the power to, to take it. He says, I, I am the one who has the power to, to take it and to, to take it up again. But, but part of the will here that he reflects upon is the fact that the Father gave the Son a particular people. Verse number 15, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And that, that the will of the Father in which... Um, he loves and gives himself to is the fact that he will give himself for a people, not only of that fold, but of another fold. That Jesus knows that when he prays, not my will, but thine be done, he knows what the will of the Father is. He knows those whom the Father has given him. He knows why he's there. He knows what he's moving toward. And ultimately, he submits to that in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he rises up and says, let us go, he is submitting to the will of the Father. And as he goes in betrayal, he's submitting to the will of the Father. That when he goes to Caiaphas, the high priest, he is submitting to the will of the Father, thus pleasing him in all things, with an earnest expectation that he will save him from death. Hebrews chapter 5, as we had just read, continues to go on to speak of him being obedient even unto death. And that obedience, and through the obedience of those sufferings, um, he is perfected and able to save those to the uttermost. That it qualifies him, that his obedience um, in Gethsemane, that his obedience post-Gethsemane, that his obedience here is, is an answer to God, uh, to, to Christ from the Father, upholding him by his Spirit, um, so that he may save them to the uttermost. Every single action, every single little thing, every single obedience, every single um, reaction that he does, he's working towards something. He's working towards saving us. You know, that, 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 that the glory of Christ is, 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 in, is, is undoubtedly in the cross. You know, it's the culmination of all things. It's the, the pinnacle of, of Christ's obedience. But something, too, that we must remember is that the glory of Christ... While it no doubt culminates in the cross and his ultimate sacrifice, the glory of Christ is not confined only to the cross. You see, men died upon the cross before, men died upon the cross after. What, what then was different? So, well, that's easy. It's because he was God. That's what's different. He could obey, surely. Yeah, that's true, but it's not all. You know, God could have came down as a 33-year-old man, gave his life on Calvary, 
You know, for sinners like us, why didn't he? Um, why didn't he just why didn't he just send an angel to die for sinners like us? Because the book of Hebrews is explicit that, that he must become like us in all points, that he must be a man as we are. He must live the entirety of the life and every single step that he takes towards the cross, every single moment, act of obedience in his entire life, he's accruing in this account a righteousness which is not our own. That, 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 that what we see here is we see him rise up from Gethsemane and go towards the cross. And, and while it looks like death, hell, and Rome and Judaism are, 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 are scheming against him, and in some sense they are, um, he's willfully, obediently, joyfully um, submitting himself to the Father, being upheld by the Spirit. Why? Because when he gets to that cross, he has to have an entire life of righteousness in which he's going to give to you and me by faith, by repentance, that we may stand before God, holy and righteous on that great day. You know, that the cross is only a portion of it. Um, the cross removes our sins. The cross takes away and forgives you of all of your iniquities. But Christ gives you himself. God the Father extends to you Christ himself. And you stand in His righteousness, in His righteousness alone. But it's even an earned righteousness in some sense. As He lives the life that you and I cannot live. We see Him um, begin to obey the Father. And even see the answer to the prayer in which He'd give. Which was to sustain Him all the way to the cross. This is the beginning of Him willingly lay down His life. John 10, 17 again. We see those wicked men come in and overtake Jesus. We should not think of Jesus as some poor, pathetic victim of unjust arrest. This is not an issue of social justice, of crime against race, or a violation of constitutional rights. What we see in Jesus Christ is a victor standing in regal dignity, working his way according to the will of God in utter submission, not only to lay his life down for us, but to live it for us. That's that we could have all of Christ when we come to him. And while many think that they may have had control that night, such as Judas and all the schemes and all the plots and Caiaphas and Pilate and all of them come together, they think we've got the Christ. Um, they, they, they failed to realize that Jesus was in control all along. Not only that, but this was the beginning of him being numbered with the transgressors. But this is probably one of the great tragedies of this text, isn't it? Isaiah 53, verse 12, Nathan read this morning that they were, he, was, he would be numbered with the transgressors. Many take that to believe that he would hang between two criminals and be numbered among them. But the reality is, is that's true, but it's deeper. That he would hang there because he was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted a criminal. Why have you came to me, he says, with swords and with staves and with clubs as if I'm a criminal? Were you not with me? Do you not know me? And yet you treat me like a criminal. You beat me like a criminal. Because you think I'm a criminal. This was the beginning of him being utterly forsaken. He would be totally abandoned. He would be treated as a criminal. But it would not be because they overwhelmed him and they took control of him and because they out-schemed him. Don't you know that I have ten thousands of ten thousands of angels? 
Jesus, what we hear is, a, is G, King Jesus, again, in regal dignity with his eyes towards the cross, with in total submission to the Father, out of a love for the nations. He sets himself forward. He says, let's get up. It's time to go. All will abandon me, but that's okay. This is my work and my work alone. That's the picture I want you to know today. That's what I want you to see. Not some poor, pitiful, victimized Jesus. But King Jesus who has set himself to a cause. And by the help and aid of the Spirit of God and out of a love for the Father in you, he goes therefore, he subdues himself, he yields himself to the dirt which he had made um, in such a way that is unthinkable. And he does it for you. And he does it for me. Why? So that you may have a relationship with him. He was spat on, he was beaten, he was abused, he was rejected, he was deserted. Even more than that, he was forsaken of the Father. Called on to willfully drink the cup of God's wrath, entering into a relationship with the Father and sin in such a way that he had never never before in all eternity. Why? So that he could enter into a relationship with sinners like you, sinners like me. All of this was for Acts chapter 4, predetermined counsel of God before the ages began. He was not surprised, and neither should we be. Number two, not only that, not only do we learn of the success of the Son in submission to the Father, but we see, um, finally, I just want to bring this out. There's a hundred things we could probably bring out of this. Not only do you see the success of the Son in submission to the Father and yielding to the, um, to the will of the Father and even Him answering His prayer, but we see the utter failure of humanity. We see the utter failure of humanity in this scripture. They put God in the dock. They put Him on the stand. They treated Him like a criminal. All because they wanted and needed to justify themselves. They judged the creator of the world and found him worthy of death. The prince of life, worthy of death. They stood as a council of men, made accusations, manipulated the data to support their conclusion. Why? Because they hated him. They hated him. And again, it would be easy for us this morning to stand in judgment of them and to condemn these men because of the heinous reality of that truth. But the reality is, is that that's not just the story of them. But that's the story of us all, isn't it? Man stands in his fallenness, not as a faithful arbiter of truth, gathering all of the information impartially to discern a conclusion concerning God because we really want to believe in him and we want to know him and we want to serve him. So many of us make claims like this, that if only we had had more information, if only God would show himself more clearly, if only, if only, if only. Thus, putting the, the, the onus upon God himself to prove himself to us worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be obeyed, and worthy to be praised. When the reality of Scripture is clear, Romans 8, 1.18 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, he says. That the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. These men loved darkness rather than light. You may be wondering how in the world could they do that with all the evidence, with all of the, I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, for three and a half years, miracles were unparalleled. I mean, he stayed the heavens. He, he, he brought to light things that were um, unfathomable. He healed the blind. He did this. He did that. He raised the dead. I mean, let's go get, if they really wanted evidence, they should have went and got Jairus's daughter. I mean, bring Lazarus here. He'll tell us. Where's blind Bartimaeus? Let's see. You know, what about those 5,000, those 20,000 that ate the bread and the loaves of the little boy? You know, if they really wanted to know, they would have sought it out, but they didn't want to know. We don't want to know by nature. They loved darkness rather than light. They hated the light because it exposed their evil deeds. Thus they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, that which was ever, ever clear before their eyes. They suppressed it to such in a way so that they could, and they made accusations and they made excuses against the Holy One of Israel. Um, they weighed Him in the balance and they found Him wanting and worthy of death. Why? Because they wanted to justify themselves. We can speculate the cause, you know, we can go to the chief priests, we can go to the scribes, we can go to the elders, we can go to the Pharisees, and we can see just the love of the sins of their hearts. And we can see that when Jesus Christ steps upon the scene, he brings into question everything that they love, and he demands them to love him. And they won't do it. They refuse to do it. They don't just fail to do it. They hate the idea of even doing it. And thus, they conspire chapter after chapter, account after account, relationship after relationship, to such an extent that now they've, they've cohorted this entire group of people and brought peoples together whom they would never fellowship with before. Why? Because they must kill the Christ. They must get him out of here. They must remove him. He stands in the way of their objectives. They stand in the, he stands in the way of their agenda. He stands in the way of everything that they love. And as long as he's here, the light exposes the darkness. We must put it out. That's exactly what you see here. But that's also exactly what you see today. That's what you see us do. That's what you see men today do. 
I mean, on, it's not, you don't have to run far to find it. Just look in the mirror on a lot of days. But the problem with people today is not that they don't have enough data and if only God would do this and God would do that. And they, they come as impartial arbiters of truth saying, I'm neutral and on neutral ground when the reality is, is not. And they will do anything and everything that they can to kill Christ and protect their sin instead of trust Christ and kill their sin. What we learn here is just of the utter submission of the Son to the Father in obedience to Him, but we also just learn by nature the um, reprobates and sinful nature of the common man. And unless Christ comes forward and shows you His beauty and majesty and glory and His worthiness to be praised, um, you'll work and find every single way that you can, even in your own heart, this present day, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why? So that your deeds will not be exposed. The reality is, is that they loved themselves more than they loved Christ. And you see the extent that men would go because of the love of themselves. Um, but the sad thing is, is that you don't have to go far to see that same reality in most of our hearts on many days. Hating the truth, clinging to our sin, suppressing what we know, you know, saying, God, man, if he, if he really showed up, I'd, I think I'd quit that sin. <laughs> we confuse his patience and his long-suffering for apathy and indifference, thinking that he doesn't care what we do or who we are or where we go, or we abuse grace and say it doesn't really matter. When in all reality, um, we abuse the, the patience and long-suffering of God and confuse it. When today is the day of salvation, friends. That today is the day that if Christ is worthy to be praised, he's worthy to be praised today and not tomorrow. Have we not seen the, the glorious Christ, the majesty and beauty of his, his character and his nature? Have you not seen the beauty in his eyes as he sets forth, enduring what none of us would ever do, even probably for our, our greatest friends, in full disclosure with the Father, knowing exactly what is before him? He goes in humble submission. And that's why today we can enter in boldly to the throne room of grace. No accolade, no skill, no intellect, no, no wisdom here today that we have to offer. Just Jesus Christ and Christ alone who is today worthy to be praised. Do you see him as the supreme, submissive son to the Father who has with vehement cries and tears been heard, resurrected, brought back from the dead, purchased your eternal salvation? Or do you stand... In, in just righteous, unrighteous indignation, making every excuse of why you can't believe in God and you won't believe in God or you won't serve God until he does this or that. If he is not more evident than he already is, listen, God owes you nothing. You don't put God on the dock. He puts you on there. He is not found wanting. You are. And at the end of the day, he doesn't need you. You need him. And that's why we say today is the day of salvation. And that if you need him, that promise still stands. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
He is a harsh God to those who won't come, but he is a gracious Savior to those who will. And that if that's you today, I beg you on behalf of Christ, come unto him and be at rest. Rest from your labors. And I pray that Christ uses that today in some way in your life to make you more like his son. Um, And that's what we have. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is to call upon you. God, we thank you for the privilege it is to serve. (coughs) Father, I pray that um, we were faithful today. Um, Father, I just thank you for loving me. I thank you, Father, just for the... just for the blessing of knowing you. Father, I thank you for the peace and the comfort and the joy and the, and the grace that comes in Christ. I thank you for his humble obedience. I thank you for his perseverance. I thank you, Father, for the spirit that upheld him. Father, I thank you for just an infinite amount of things that I can't even begin to fathom or understand. And Lord, I don't need to. God, I want to know more, and I want to know your Son more, and I want to know the power of the Spirit more, Father, but I don't need to know all the intricacies. I don't need to know how it all works together or ties in. I don't need to know, Father, all the details. I just need to know Him and the power of His resurrection. Father, I need to come to the end of myself even more so than I already have. Father, I need to be continually sanctified and set up and, and made more like your Son. Father, I'm so thankful that you answer the son's prayers because I know that he's at the right hand of God the Father ever interceding for me. Father, I know that he will hold me fast. Father, I know that, um, that, that in him, that in Christ, he will lose none. I know that that's the will of the Father, that, that all those whom are given to the son, he will lose none, Father, and I know that I'm one and I know that I'll not be lost and I glory in that, Father. Um, Not because you chose me for anything in and of me, Father, but because you chose me in Christ and he's worthy. Father, would you help us as a church? Would you help us as individuals just day in and day out understand that more? To to abide in him, Father, and to find ourselves just complete in thee in an experiential way. And Father, we need leadership, guidance, and direction in this church and even in my own life, Father. I need to love you more. God, would you teach us how to do that? Would you take us farther into the glories of Christ, showing us his majesty, his beauty, but also his righteousness and his holiness? Would you not allow the world, the devil, the flesh, Father, to steal those things from us which are eternally ours? God, would you give us that tremendous shalom, that peace, that satisfaction, that that joy, that happiness in that inner man, Father, that, that comes with Christ? Thus we can say faithfully that when he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, we can say we came unto him, all that labored, Father, and he gave us rest. Father, help us to be a light to a lost and a dying world. Help us to be a a candle, Father, to our children. And may they all come to Christ as a result of your faithfulness to us, Father, and the light that you've shined through us. Father, we need these things. If there's anybody here today, Father, struggling with their own self and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and making excuses, Father, would you bring them to the end of themselves? Would you leave them without excuse? And would you, Father, make them 
see and understand. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear of the glories of Christ such that they run from themselves, abandon their sin, and cling to the Savior for their soul's salvation and for all eternity. May they know that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.